Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Loose Ends, the Sing Family Tragedy, has been created specifically for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is graphic depiction of violence and murder, frank betrayal of sexuality, and at times excessive language. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. This is episode 6, Loose Ends. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. Before I get into this episode, I would like to add to a matter from episode 5. You heard Max Seeker's sister, Anna, say that when he arrived at Inogra to collect her, a neighbour named Kieran saw them. A statement was apparently taken from Kieran that Anna's mother saw. That was the first I knew of this matter. I can say there is no statement in the police brief. It is also possible that the defence team at the time obtained the statement, and I'll try and speak with Sam DiCarlo about that. I have mentioned previously that whilst I have the majority of the material in this case, I did not have the job logs. I now do. 1,500 job logs and 1,800 running sheets. Unfortunately, they are not computerised, so I cannot search by keywords, etc. I will need to trawl through these documents manually to see if I can find any reference to the neighbour Kieran. This has implications for both sides. If it is accurate, it places Max Seeker at Clooney's Ross Cordonogra around 2pm on the Tuesday and not at Grass Tree Close. If it is not accurate, it clears any doubt regarding that. The Seekers approached Denogra Army Barracks, but all information was declined, which would be expected. If you lived in Clooney's Ross Court in Ogre in 2003 or know someone who did, I would like to hear from you. Kieran, having been in the army, could now be anywhere in Australia. And now to get into the episode, Loose Ends. No murder investigation is ever perfect, and it's not expected that every investigation would be perfect. There are always unanswered questions, matters unresolved. This case is extraordinary, notable by the number of outstanding issues. Perhaps the longer the investigation, the more outstanding issues. But shouldn't it be the other way? The longer the investigation, the less matters unresolved? I call the unresolved matters loose ends. Some of the issues are minor and would have no impact on the trial outcome. Some of them are major and would have a consequential impact on the trial outcome. Some I have raised already, including the question of whether Max Seeker was really home on the Sunday night. 
Lockhart's principle of exchange, the outstanding fingerprints, the cup, sandals, and so on. There are 18 unresolved consequential issues in this case. After a six-year investigation, there are 18 loose ends. The time of death. As you have heard, the pathologist believed the time of death somewhere between four hours and two days. Four hours to two days. What a window of opportunity. The window the Queensland Police ultimately settled on was closer to the two-day mark. Between 11.10pm on the Sunday night and 7.15am on the Monday morning. It is no coincidence this was the only window of opportunity available to Max Seeker to commit the murders. If it could be shown death occurred outside of those hours, it becomes very problematic for the Crown case that Max Seeker was the killer. There were a number of neighbours who contradicted the above timeline. There was really no other evidence located to confirm that time frame. The cessation of communication by the victims on the Monday is compelling but doesn't mean they were dead by that time or just incapacitated. The loss adjuster put the water damage at between 12 to 24 hours, which made it Monday afternoon or later. In May 2006, police requested a professor of DNA to conduct some calculations. As part of the written information they gave her, she was told the bodies had been in the spa water approximately 12 hours before being found. That would make it 2am on Tuesday morning. A short time later, at the time of Max Seeker's arrest, this had changed dramatically to 36 plus hours. I cannot find any significant evidence after 2006 to change the time the bodies had been in the water so significantly. I have perused all available documents and can find nothing. As I've said before, the window of opportunity on the Sunday night, about 36 hours before the bodies were found, was the only window of opportunity Max Seeker had to murder the victims. Overall, it does not inspire confidence the time of death as proposed by the police was accurate. Was Max Seeker lying when he said he arrived at the murder scene around 2.20pm on the Tuesday? Or did he, as police claim, arrive at 2pm or earlier? And if he did, what was his motive? He could not have removed anything. It would have been found. He could not have moved anything or cleaned anything. His clothes had no evidence on them or on himself. And if he did arrive there at 2pm with the intention of cleaning, removing, altering evidence, there are two striking anomalies. He was in no hurry to enter the house. And if he knew the rear door to the house was unlocked, he made a very good job of pretending not to know, even when apparently unaware he was being observed. He and the children knocked on the front door. Their fingerprints were found there. They looked in windows to the house and the garage. A tradesman working next door saw them walk up the driveway. In his statement taken in May 2003, he said he saw the man try one door at the rear of the house, which wouldn't open before trying a second door, which did open. He and the children then walked inside the house. About five minutes later, they came back outside. In the same statement, but later, 
He said they came back outside after 10 minutes. At trial, nine years later, he said the children came out of the house 10 to 15 minutes later. And then there is the postman. In his statement dated 23 April 2003, the day after the bodies were found, the postman had this to say. At approximately 2pm, I delivered mail to number 20 Grass Tree Close. At that address, I saw a male person walking around the house using his mobile phone. He appeared to be trying to gain entry to the residence as he was trying to open doors and pacing up and down. In a later statement, he added, I know it was around 2pm because I know how long that mile run normally takes me. I knew that I finished the run through the next estate at about 2.30pm. Therefore, by deducting the time it would have taken me, I arrived at the time of 2pm. I would say this would be accurate within 10 minutes. I mentioned seeing a male person walking around. I recall that this male was walking from the rear of the house, down the right side of the house, and to the front of the garage. The male tried to pull up the garage door with his fingers. I would describe the demeanour of the male person I saw as being anxious. At trial, he agreed it could have been as late as 2.20, but did not believe it could be any later than that, somewhere between 2pm and 2.20pm. In the last episode, you heard what Max Seeker's sister and his niece Milena had to say, confirming they dropped Anna off at Stafford City Shopping Centre before travelling to Bridgman Downs. An 18-year-old neighbour living in Grass Tree Close was home with her boyfriend on the afternoon of Tuesday, 22 April. They were at the back of the home. When they saw the police commotion, they went outside and a uniform officer recorded their details at 3.25pm. By working back, the pair agreed they arrived home at approximately 2.10pm. The police officer wrote the time in her notebook. At that time, Max Seeker's car was not in the street, only tradesmen's vehicles. When they later gave statements, they were shown the police officer's notebook, which recorded the time they were interviewed, and the time they calculated they arrived home. The woman gave evidence at trial, but was not asked what time she arrived home. She was asked in cross-examination and she said she could not remember what time they arrived home but thought it was 1.50pm. That was nine years later. Her boyfriend was not called to give evidence. From reading the statements, I am aware some police were suspicious of Seeker's claim that he removed the blankets and bedding from on top of the spa when he first entered the bathroom. They suspected his clothes should have been soaking wet. If you accept that Max Seeker arrived at the murder house at or about 2.20pm on that day, it does not prove that he did not murder the children, but it does become a distraction. And if you accept both premises, that is, that he was home on the Sunday night until at least 1am, the Crown case has serious problems. And make no mistake, in a circumstantial case, evidence of lies is considered a big factor in jury deliberations. I know that in the Leanne Holland murder, when Graham Stafford was accused of telling lies, that was a significant influencer. The jury foreman in that case was later very vocal about the evidence they did not hear at trial. The temperature of the spa bath water. Much time was spent investigating this matter, but very little time was spent at trial on it. Only the hot water tap was turned on. The jets were turned on, which aerated the spa and gave it the bubbling effect, 
Max Seeker told police he turned the hot water tap off, but not the jets when he entered the room. The house was flooded with water, so this claim appears corroborated. First responders who entered the ensuite reported it was warmer than other rooms. Humid and steamy. There was condensation on the mirrors. One first responder said she felt a heat source when she entered the ensuite. The bathroom was very warm, similar to that of a bathroom after having a hot shower. This led me to believe that the temperature in the spa was quite hot to generate that much heat. I assumed that this spa must have a self-regulating temperature feature to keep the temp warm. Another first responder made this comment, a distinct temperature difference. And this is where it gets complicated. The solar hard hot water system was programmed to ensure the hot water in the holding tank did not exceed 49 degrees Celsius to prevent scalding. It was found that with the hot water tap open, the holding tank would be empty of hot water in 15 to 20 minutes. Cold water would then be filling the tank and exiting directly through the open tap. The hot water system would not heat the water prior to it exiting the tap. That was the case if the water flow was 3.7 litres per minute or more. If the water flowed out of the tap at 2.7 litres per minute or lower, the solar heart would heat the water. And because the tap had been turned off, it could not be determined what the water flow was. The water pump which operated the water jets had no facility to heat or assist in maintaining the water temperature. At 6.20pm on Tuesday 22 April, police measured the water temperature and recorded it as 32 degrees Celsius. There are so many unanswered questions. Why was the bathroom warm and steamy? Why was the water still 32 degrees at 6.22pm on Tuesday night? How much water entered the spa and how much simply poured over the top of the bedding onto the floor. And how much water entered the spa, and as the water level reached the top, the water spilled out. Did the cooling bodies in the spa impact on the water temperature? How much, if at all, did the spa motor contribute to the temperature in the ensuite? It certainly did not, and could not, have increased the water temperature. Did the heat the motor generated increase the room temperature? On the Crown case, the bodies were placed in the spa at the very latest, around 6am on Monday 21 April. More likely much earlier, perhaps shortly after midnight. The water temperature was taken at 6.22pm the next day, Tuesday, a time frame of at least 36 hours and possibly as much as 42 hours. Is it really possible the water temperature and the hot, humid conditions in the bathroom were still there after 36 to 42 hours. Scientific police conducted experiments throughout the months of September 2003. The results were entered into what became known as the spa bath test register. In eight separate tests, the spa was filled with hot water at midnight. Over a continuous period of 38 hours, the water temperature was taken every 30 minutes, with a final temperature taken at 6.22pm on the 38th hour. In one test, the spa was filled at 9am and the hot water tap turned off at 2.20pm. The temperature was taken again at 6.20pm that night. The results of those tests were not given at trial. I have read the spa bar test register. The conclusions are confusing and inconclusive due to there being so many unknown variables. 
Could anything further have been done to work backwards from a spa temperature of 32 degrees? Personally, I struggle with the concept that the water would still be 32 degrees and the bathroom hot and humid after 36 to 42 hours. The car sightings in Pepper Street claimed to be associated with Sika, which were clearly eliminated by the fact the vehicle had been sighted there at 6pm on Sunday when Sika was at home and should never have been allowed in evidence. The witnesses could not even agree that it was a Sunday night. It may have been a Saturday night. And they were certain it was a blue Commodore and not either of the cars Max Seeker drove. It is hard to see how those sightings are connected to Max Seeker. But were they connected to the murders? The 2009 affidavit of Mr G, who claimed the children were murdered by mistake, instead of Vijay Singh. You have not heard of this statement to this time. I have not been able to ascertain if this statement was provided to police, but I can say it was not used at the trial. I do not know whether the claims made in the statement have been investigated or not. I have no knowledge as to the veracity of the claims made, but the deponent did swear an oath that the contents were true and correct. Given the nature of the contents, I can only read out portions of the five-page statement. This is the man's words, but not his voice. I was at the motel at Kingersmith Drive with a couple of guys doing business, and a young guy came in and threw the newspaper down and said, they got the kids instead of the old fella, referring to Singh. I don't know Max Seeker, but I know he is innocent, and it has played with my head. He was in love with one of the kids, so it's even worse to be blamed for it. There were three guys who did the murder of the Singh kids, I was told. They came over and were already on the plane and gone by the time we heard about it in the paper. They were from Indonesia. As far as I know, no one knew that Singh wasn't going to be there until they got to the house and found he wasn't there, so they just killed the kids. The morning I was in the motel room when the paper came out was the day after the night it happened. The impression I got was it had happened at two or three in the morning and the guys were already on the plane and gone by the time the paper came out. Someone in the motel room said there was no way the bodies were in the water for 12 hours. They knew the timing wasn't right. Is it at all possible the Singh children were alive after 7.15am on Monday 21 April? Let's explore that. You heard from Ted Dews in episode 5. He and others, including Max Seeker's lawyers, believe the children were murdered much later, possibly Monday night. And you heard in previous episodes of the witnesses who placed Max Seeker at his home on the Sunday night after he was supposed to be killing the children at their home. Why and how did the police settle on time of death as between 11.10pm on the Sunday and 7.15am on the Monday? You cannot rely on the pathologist, and no disrespect is meant. He simply could not pinpoint the exact time of death, or for that matter, the approximate time of death, or the day. There were too many variables. Queensland police had to rely on other matters to determine time of death. Water damage to the house was consistent with damage having been caused over a period of 12 to 24 hours. That would mean Monday or even early Tuesday. The victims were dressed in going-to-bed clothes, including Neilma. Valid point. 
Siddy actually had a jumper or tracksuit top tied around her waist. I cannot find where that was mentioned at trial. Do you go to bed with a jumper tied around your waist? Wouldn't it be uncomfortable? Lumpy? And another matter that has never been raised before until now. It was not heard at trial. Jurors would have noticed it if they had examined the post-mortem photos closely, which I doubt. At post-mortem, Siddy's body was noted she had blistering to her legs, arm and back. It was never mentioned again, but I suggest it was, and is, significant. How does a little 12-year-old girl receive blisters to her body? And when did she receive them? And the one in the middle of her back was quite large. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Advice obtained suggests it was not connected with decomposition. Advice also confirmed the blistering could not have been caused by the water temperature in the spa. I guess it would have to be dealt with under the all encompassing folio of distraction. There was blood, a lot of blood in each of the bedrooms and on some of the beds, consistent with the victims being murdered in their bed. Valid point. Both Canal and City suffered blunt force trauma to the right side of their head. I'm not sure that proves anything. Neoma suffered blunt force trauma to the front of her head, as well as being strangled. Was that because Canal and City were on their sides and Neoma was on her back? Or is that an indication of two separate killers at work, performing their craft in different fashions? Communications ceased to and from the victims after Sunday night, 20 April. Valid point. The alarm was not set Sunday night when Max Seeker was expected. Valid point. There was no evidence of the victims cooking on the Monday. Not completely validated. That appears to be it. From those observations, you can draw a valid and reasonable conclusion the victims were murdered on the night of Sunday, 20 April, morning of Monday, 21 April. Or can you? As I have said, if it can be shown that the murders did occur after 7.15am on the Monday, it becomes very inconvenient for the Crown, as Max Seeker had various alibis after that time and a very, very limited window of opportunity, if any, to commit the murders. Is there any evidence to suggest that the murders occurred after 7.15am on the Monday? Well, possibly there is. Painter Paul was painting a house in Grass Tree Close on that Monday. 
When he first contacted police, he told them he was 100% sure he had seen City Singh outside her front door on that day. I have spoken with Painter Paul, but he declined to be interviewed for the podcast. He gave police a statement on 3 May. This is part of what he said. This is not his voice. I remember that at about 9am on the 21st of April 2003, just before Smoko, I was painting an upstairs front bedroom window frame from the inside. This window is on the side of the building and faces towards number 20 Grass Tree Close. The other window in this bedroom faces the street. From the window that I was painting, I could see across the front yard of the house next door, and I had a clear view leading to the front door of number 20, which is about 50 yards away. At this time, I had just finished painting the top section of the window frame when I saw the front door at number 20 open up. A small black animal was waiting at this door. I saw a young female, no older than 14 years of age, with long black hair, blowing and just past the shoulder in length, thin build of olive complexion. She was wearing blue jeans definitely, and I'm not sure about the colour of her top. The top was a short-sleeved t-shirt style, and the colours red and white popped to mine but I didn't really take that much notice of her when she opened the door. I saw her come out of the front door, pick up the animal that was black in colour and about a foot long. She then went straight back inside with the animal held against her chest and she closed the front door again. On Tuesday the 22nd of April 2003, at about 6pm, I was at home watching the Channel 7 News with Kay McGrath and I saw the pictures of the three purportedly from number 20. And I recognised the youngest girl on television as being the girl I'd seen pick up the dog the day before. I am 100% sure that the photograph on television was of the young girl I saw pick up the dog at 9am the day before. I knew that it was at 9am because I go out at 9.20am every morning from a job to pick up the smoko from a local shop. It happened about 20 minutes before I went out to get smoko. Poor Les was not called to give evidence but the jury did see a video of his police interview. Police were able to confirm that Kay McGrath did not read the news on Tuesday night on Channel 7, therefore he was mistaken, with everything he had to say, it seems. But that is a rather simplistic excuse for claiming he was mistaken. His movements on the Monday 21st April were validated, and his evidence was corroborated by his workmate, Rick M., and Rick M. gave a police statement on 23 April, just one day later. This is part of what he had to say. This is not his voice. On Tuesday the 22nd of April 2003 at about 9.15am, I went out to the front left looking towards the road and corner of the house I was working on to get a drink of water from a tap. I glanced at the house at 20 Grass Tree Close and noticed two vehicles were parked directly outside the house. It was only a quick glance, and I do not recall any details of the vehicles, unfortunately. No colour, make or model. I then went back to work. About 2pm on the 22nd of April 2003, I noticed a black sedan parked near 20 Grass Tree Close. A male was sitting in the vehicle. I've never seen this vehicle or male before. I would describe this male as Caucasian, approximately 30 years old. Sometime during this day, I have no idea when it was, Paul made a passing comment to me. He said, I saw the girl come out and pick up her dog. Why would you own a scruffy looking thing like that? From memory, I think we were downstairs when the comments were made, but I can't be sure. I knew he was talking about the young girl at the Singh house. 
He didn't say whether he had just seen the girl or whether it was some time earlier. As you have heard, various witnesses were confused over events. Is it possible that Paul S. was confused regarding the date he saw the news event, not what he saw in Grass Tree Close that fateful Monday? Being confused over the night he saw a TV program should be separate and distinct to what he claims he saw on the morning of the 21st, surely. The Crown argued that because a neighbour of 20 Grass Tree Close, who was working out in the front yard, didn't see the child briefly exit the Singh house, it didn't happen. And what of the two cars parked directly out the front of the Singh house on the morning of Tuesday 22 April that Rick M saw, the day before giving police the statement? The occupants of those two cars were never identified, despite the media storm that followed the deaths. Did those occupants have an innocent reason to be visiting the Sings that morning? If so, why did they not come forward? The Crown case was that the cars could have been visiting other houses or building sites in the street and were nothing more than a distraction. During the trial judge's summing up to the jury, he had this to say, in part, regarding the claims made by Paul S. These are his words, but not his voice. There is other evidence indicating that the Singh children were dead before Mr S thought he saw a girl at the front door of 20 Grass Tree Close. In the circumstances, you might think that Mr S was mistaken, although, as with all factual issues, this is a matter for you. A 12-year-old resident of Grass Tree Close was a neighbour and friend of City. She rode her push bike up to the Singh house on Saturday 19 April and knocked on the door, but there was no answer. On Monday 21 April, she again rode up to the Singh house at about 3pm. Again, there was no answer to the door. She was surprised when Sidi's puppy did not come to the door when she knocked. She went home and told her mother. It was her mother's clear recollection that her daughter also told her that when she was at the Singh house, she heard music coming from the house. Mother and daughter both gave police statements two days later, on 23 April. The daughter did not mention the music. The mother did. First responders, Anne Maxika, did not report music playing when they entered the house. Mother and daughter gave evidence at the trial, but the question of music was not raised. But they were not the only goings-on around 20 Grass Tree Close that Monday and Tuesday. Kim B and her husband were hosting two friends at their house for a barbecue on the afternoon of Monday 21 April. Their house was around 50 metres in a straight line from the murder house. The gathering started around 4.30pm. Between 7.30pm and 8.30pm, they all heard what they believed were three gunshots. They could not pinpoint the exact location of the shots, but it was from the direction of 20 Grass Tree Close. They discussed that they expected to hear police sirens any time soon which did not eventuate. They also heard what they described as a blood-curdling female scream. Three of the four witnesses gave evidence. Alicia F. lived about 400 metres from 20 Grass Tree Close, across parkland and up on a hill. She had a direct line of sight to the Singh House. At 12.20am on Tuesday 22 April, she was awoken by what she described as a blood-curdling scream. She woke her husband and made him go downstairs and check the perimeter. She walked to the rear of the house, which faced Grass Tree Close, as she believed the sound carried from that direction. 
She stood there for some 10 to 15 minutes, but heard nothing further and saw no movement. She stated the scream frightened her, and that is why she spent so much time looking and watching. She gave a statement to police the following day, 23 April. Curiously, the trial judge did not even mention the evidence of any of these witnesses in his summing up. I can only assume none of those witnesses were considered relevant. If that was the case, why did he not say so? Alternative motives Many motives are put forward for crimes, especially when police make public requests for information and assistance. Police were told about a boarding house fire at Sandgate, another Brisbane northern suburb. It occurred nine months before the murders. Three residents died. The fire was considered suspicious. Investigators ultimately could not exclude accidental cause and could not exclude incendiary ignition. A reward of a quarter of a million dollars for information regarding the cause of the fire remains unclaimed to this day. By coincidence, the boarding house was owned by Turbot Dutta, brother to Shirley Singh. The following article appeared in the Australian newspaper on 5 February 2004. Queensland detectives are investigating links between a Brisbane triple murder and a suspicious boarding house fire that killed three men. Police said yesterday it was an astonishing coincidence that Fiji and Indian accountant Turbot Dutta was the uncle of murder victims Nilma, Kunel and Siddhi Singh. Mr Dutta is a former owner of the notorious Seabreeze Lodge at Beach Size Sandgate that burnt down in a suspected arson attack on August 17, 2002. Three men died in the blaze and a fourth man was so traumatised that he died of a heart attack. Less than a year later, the bodies of the Singh children were found submerged in a spa in their northern Brisbane home. Police said Mr Dutta was not a suspect, but had been interviewed to identify any possible links between the two tragedies. I think there were 15 plus areas of investigation that we've gone down, Detective Patton said. We've looked at the family dynamics, relations, relatives, the father, and possible connections to Fiji. Neilma, anything from former boyfriends. I mean, there's so many things you have to go down before you can say, yep, we're happy with that. In the immediate aftermath of the murder, suspicion fell upon computer technician Max Seeker, Neilma Singh's former boyfriend and a convicted arsonist. He challenged police to charge him so he could clear his name. In a curious twist, when Vijay and Shirley Singh flew back to Australia after being notified of the death of their children on 23 April 2003, they were picked up at the International Terminal by police and driven to Petrie Police Station. Whilst there, Vijay received a telephone call from Turbot Dutta, the owner of the Sandgate Boarding House. As a result of that call, Vijay informed detectives he would not be assisting police with their investigation of the deaths of his children, nor would he be providing a statement. After lengthy and heated discussions with detectives, he reversed that decision. It is not known what the subject of that phone call was. In a statement to police in July 2003, Turbot Dutter informed he had very little contact with the Singh family. He had only been to their Bridgman Downs house on one occasion. He did not know they had travelled to Fiji the week before the murders. He did not know Max Seeker. The Singhs would have no knowledge of his business dealings. He knew nothing. You may recall that prior to emigrating to Australia, Vijay Singh had a 49% share in a business located in Fiji. He sold this business to Shirley's brother, 
VC data for half a million Fijian dollars. After the sale, the business began to fail. There were claims that there was considerable animosity between the Dutters and Vijay Singh. During the police investigation, the relationship between the Dutters and the Singhs was examined. Police concluded there was no animosity between the families and no motive for the murders. I was able to interview the stepfather of one of the boarding house fire victims. Yeah, Neville, Graham Crowley. Graham, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. You lost a son in that fire, right? Yeah, well, stepson, yes, son. Step- yeah, I've been with him since he was two years of age, yeah. Can you tell me about him? Were you close to him? Oh, yeah, he lived here. He wouldn't live here. He wouldn't, didn't want to stay at home because we believed he... Uh, we wanted him to go and look for work, but he just couldn't apply himself. So, so he chose not to live at home, but would come over and probably most afternoons for tea. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so you had a good. weren't estranged or anything like that. No. 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 Neville, the coroner couldn't work out whether it was a an accident or arson. Yes. But you have some fairly strong views on that, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me what those views are? Well. Due to the fact where the seed of the fire was, it couldn't have been accidentally lit. Right. It was under the floorboards, right? By, it couldn't have been lit by someone throwing a cigarette butt out the window because uh, it, it, it was under the house and was away from the meter box. Um, well, the expert, the fire experts showed in court it couldn't have come from the meter box of an electrical failure. I wonder why they ruled it, they couldn't work out what it was then, whether it was arson or, or accidental. Um, I don't know. I have strong views that the, the council didn't follow up their... Uh, the fellow, the, the boarding house owner, Dutta, was given... In actual fact, I grilled the council bloke in the witness box. He were, he Sometimes he would ask the coroner, do I have to answer that? And he, invariably he was told he had to. They'd let them know when they were coming to do inspections. It's like us telling a, a drug dealer we're coming. Now, you were aware of a, of a newspaper article in the Australian newspaper in 2004, and that was investigating whether there was a connection between that fire and the yep. murder of the Singh children. Yes. Do you know what that was about? I didn't know that Bert Dutter and Shirley Singh were brother and sister. Hmm. When they were investigating the links between, whether there was a link between the fire and the murders, it seems to me either it could only have been, was there a link between Dutta and the Singh family? So was there some sort of situation there that could have caused the fire? Or were they looking at Max Seeker as the uh, arsonist, bearing in mind that he had convictions for arson? That's right. Hmm. I believe he was investigated over the fire. Yeah. There was a convicted arsonist living in the boarding house. Okay. Did that person know Max Eagle? No, I would no. think not. Yeah, okay. I would think not. Do you know what the relationship was between Bert Dutter and Vijay Singh? No, but I've, I've heard by rumour it wasn't very good. Do you know why? Don't know. Don't know, because I didn't even know the link between them. But I've heard from several people that they didn't have a good relationship. All right, Neville. Right, thanks, Graham. Catch right, up, mate. Yeah, mate.
All the best. Bye. Thank you for listening to Episode 6, Loose Ends. Please join me in Episode 7, Murder and Mayhem in the South Pacific, where I explore the police investigations which occurred in Fiji into Operation Bravo Settler. I have not referred to the operation name before. All significant investigations are given an operation name for a number of reasons. Security, probably the most important. The murder of the Singh children was given the name Operation Bravo Settler. I also explore a series of crimes including murder and conspiracy to murder in the Solomon Islands in 1991. The principal figure in those crimes was to become the target of a Queensland Police operation in 2002. Queensland Police did not consider a possible connection between the two investigations, but as you will hear, the connection was significant. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like it, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Appreciation to Bad Bassam for editing, mixing and mastering the episode. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.